Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. I'm Joanna, and here is the Maestro, Stephen Barlow. And today I've got an interesting um, and quite important question to talk to you about, which is modernism, something that has slightly sort of scooted over my head, because what you particularly said to me you'd like to talk about is the breakdown of tonality. Now, you've left me. I've stumbled at the first fence. Can you help me on this, Maestro? <laughs> what are we talking about? Well, you... Tonality, just start, just start. <laughs> All music up until the very end of the 19th century was based around the idea of consonants. And consonants, of course, means con from the Latin notes with that, and sonance notes sounding. That, notes that sound fit with, with each other. Sit with each other. To give a feeling of benign happiness. Yeah. The natural humming of, of nature, mm. as opposed to white noise, which is just a blanket, but picking out notes that sound particularly lovely. Okay. So that's all within the key of G major, and every note relates to each other, and, and its chords are consonant. Mm. Because each note has a relationship which fits consonantly. They come from the same harmonic sequence as others. Schoenberg's system simply said, so now no notes are going to fit at all with any others in a consonant form. That will not be a priority. And if that ever happens, then it's a fluke. So that might sound like this. You see, now this is so. This is, all right. So I know that a lot of music lovers are going. That's the stuff. But for me, you go. Oh no, the baby's at the piano again. So why, <laughs> why, who? To the ordinary human ear, you go. That's pretty horrible. Like a black, like a finger on a black. You know, there are certain sounds you go. Ooh, ooh, that's a horrible sound. That seemed to me. You know, you were doing it to show me. But so maybe if it sat properly in a piece of music, it would have earned its place. But on the whole, I would go, oh, I'd rather not listen to that. So what has made people have a completely different head, maybe completely different kind of alien people who simply adore that and want to make, want to compose that music? Okay, so looking around the studio, just look to your right yeah. at Duncan's painting on yeah. the wall, a huge painting on yeah. the wall there. An abstract, yeah. An abstract. Yeah. Now, you call that modern art. Yeah. Does it have any relationship whatsoever to Rembrandt? Well, it's got colours. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I know what you mean. No, I see. I see. No, it's not, it's not like Rembrandt. No, it's not. No, does it have any, any no, it connection no, with no, Rembrandt? Not really, no. And the one over Clive's head on the other wall? Yeah. No, that, that's not really like Rembrandt. 
brand at all. So what we do when we look at contemporary art is we look at it to see whether we like it, whether we are drawn to it, whether it attracts us in some way. Um, and we look to see whether there is perhaps a narrative to it, whether it's part of a story or whether it's just a photo. So with Schoenberg's basic idea of setting the notes free from consonants, you create an absolute kaleidoscope. Schoenberg's piano concerto is a very beautiful piece. To you. But it's a very good example <laughs> of when you hear it, you have to concentrate because he wanted it to be beautiful. It's always played beautifully. Alfred Brendel played Schoenberg's piano concerto and he made it sound gorgeous. Is Schoenberg what Malcolm Sargent said? I haven't heard it, but I think I've stepped in some. No, that was Beecham about oh, Stockhausen. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Schoenberg, that was horrible of me. Yes, it was, actually. <laughs> Can we hear some of this piano concerto? Because I might just love it. Can we hear Alfred Brendel playing it, if that's possible? I hope so. And it reminds me, actually, of my wonderful piano teacher at King's, Ronald Smith, who was the most fantastic virtuoso. And some of our lessons, he was very happy just to talk to me. And we talked a lot. And, and he demonstrated something to me. He said the trouble with modern music now is that it's too easy to create feelings of unease and distress. I'll give you an example. This is exactly what he did. So, be afraid. There you are. That's what he did. And of course... I, I couldn't see because you, you were in the way, but you put your hands just on the very bottom keys. I played every note there was within about an octave and a half. <laughs> put every note down. But it creates a sound yeah. that is not consonant. It, it's deeply isn't. But you, you do that softly and immediately you've created emotional unrest. Mm. And then, of course, at the other end of the scale, you can create something that's twinkly, completely happy and free. So the difference between the two is very easy to achieve. So to a certain extent, modern composers have to work harder to engage you because they have all these effects. They can frighten the pants off you with a particular sound. And you can screw up your face thinking, God, I can't bear that sound. A composer that's not interested in how it affects his audience does that at his peril. It has to be more carefully written. That's the truth. You know, if you're brought up with figurative art, i.e. art which looks as though it is something, so it's a drawing of a man and it looks like a man, it might be an Ellis Lowry man and you go, oh, it doesn't look like a real man, but I understand that is a little man. Or going back to Rembrandt, you can see it is obviously a fleshed out, complete human being. So maybe that that being the kind of beginning, you then 
are slower to take things on which are completely abstract, completely different shapes, or like Barbara Hepworth, just lines and zigzags, or or, or going on further to Damien Hirst, who outrageously just did spots and then got other people to paint them, and people exactly. bought them as art, exactly. because it is modern art. So maybe one's a bit hidebound. Maybe human beings, I've always thought this with a small c, are quite conservative. We know what we like. People always say, I know what we like. And quite often, the reason people don't like classical music is that they don't know it. What I think is the point is being able to look at a piece of modern art or listen to a piece of modern music Mm. and say, well, I'm not sure I like that because modern composers write in many different styles. There will be some who write very dense, complicated music that actually jangles on you. Now, some people find that very exciting. But you might not enjoy that. Whereas someone like Toru Takamitsu writes some of the most beautiful music that's contemporary. It's his chamber ensembles like Rain Coming, which particularly come to mind here. And he was known to ask, I think, Simon Rattle, when Simon was premiering one of his pieces, when Simon said to him, gosh, that's so beautiful. This is so beautiful. And Takamitsu apparently said, is it too beautiful, Simon? the word abstract. Now, a lot of contemporary music is also free of the classical framework of tonality and forms. You know, Richard Strauss, for example, wrote quite a lot of tone poems. He wrote two symphonies, but they're not real symphonies. They are massive tone poems. The um, Symphonia Domestica, and the Alpine Symphony. Symphonies are not written a great deal now. That's not to say they haven't been written, because Michael Tippett, who was Benjamin Britten's contemporary, those are the two big names in recent British history, Michael Tippett wrote four symphonies, and they are within a framework of a symphony. What, four movements? Four symphonies. And the second it takes you over, the the minute it starts. And you can feel you're on a journey that is based on musical ideas. And that fits into the framework. 
someone like Maxwell Davis, Peter Maxwell Davis, RIP, he's just recently died, mm. who I met several times and conducted some of his pieces. He also wrote symphonies, but I don't think he was happy with the receptions he got. He would say he really didn't mind. And so he wrote a great deal of music that was not strictly related to classical forms, like the magnificent Solstice of Light. So the orchestral suite, the symphony, the string quartets, by and large these days are not, not forms that are that common. Having said that, my string quartet's being premiered next month. I haven't even heard that. You sometimes keep your music away from me with that special knowledgeable look going, I don't think you're going to absolutely love this. And I know <laughs> we're going into the kind of area where I go, mm, and have to put on a special face and go, mm. but actually I do adore your music because I know you and because, because I'm trying to open my closed mind up. I'm trying not to only like things that that seem familiar or pleasing or thrilling. And no, I just well, want to open my mind up to different kind of One's got to sounds. be open. At the moment, we have a wonderful array of British composers. I was about to say young, but I've grown up with them. They're slightly younger than me. George Benjamin. Brilliant. Fantastic composer. His opera, Lessons in Love and Violence, is based on the story of King Edward VII and Piers Gaveston. It's full of depth and intrigue. It's nothing to do with loving a man. Yes. It's love, full, stop, is poison. Not. The whole human world is top. And the money. Always the money. The money. Always the shoe. Human parts. Then there's Mark Anthony Turnage, whose music almost always has some kind of jazz, fusion or rhythmic drive to it, like his tremendous album Scorched, which he did with the American guitarist John Schofield. James Macmillan, who writes very powerful contemporary religious and choral music like Starbat Mata, which really blows your wig off. Now, that's an entire school of different composers who offer something completely different, a completely different palette. And the important thing that we have to persevere with, and people are so 
unwilling these days to do it, is to keep an open mind and be interested mm. instead of saying, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not a classical person. Or even people who despair of 99% of pop groups and love one pop group. Mm. You know, people have got too used to um, looking at these categories and selecting a couple and saying they're mine and the rest aren't for me mm. because it's all the same, but it mm. always was. Mm. The difference, you see, is everybody can buy discs, download, build up a playlist. I'm, I'm thinking here of composers of Judith Weir, but I, I seem yeah. to know her as an organist. Is that right? No, that was Gillian Weir. That was Gillian no, Weir. Judith no, Weir Judith is another Weir. brilliant composer. Yeah. She's, she's the master of the Queen's music. Wow. And um, she's direct contemporary. To be the King's mind. music now. You are absolutely right. Mm. How do you actually get to be selected as master of the king's music? Is it like being poet laureate or something? Yes, I would reckon it's a very bureaucratic process. Mm. But you really wouldn't want necessarily to select someone who... I mean, look, mentioning no names, but there are some composers who would not particularly fit the bill to write a ceremonial piece. Or a new fanfare or something like yes, that. Yes, the very well-known Malcolm Williamson, Australian, wonderful composer, very modern. He was appointed master of the Queen's music and uh, um, wrote all sorts of carols and very rhythmic choral pieces, like the Procession of the Palms. difficult, isn't it? Because they're always then asked to when there's a new, there's a royal baby or a royal wedding or something. The poet laureate is always asked to compose a poem for that, which I know a lot of poets f find terribly difficult because they want to write about what's in their head. They can't kind of write to order. And lovely people like John Betjeman would sweetly turn his head to his paper and just scribble down something and other people didn't. Caroline Duffy wrote the most wonderful um, poem called The Crown about, about you know, not, some, not worn lightly, and she's just a genius. But I know that some people go, God, I don't want to write this stuff. I don't want to be told to write a small tone poem for a new royal baby or whatever it is. Mm. And so this must be very difficult because they're going to be expected to do that, aren't they? I think so. And, and I think they're paid with a, a butt of Malmsey or a, no, or I think a it's case sack. of sherry. Sack, is it? Sack. <laughs> <laughs> and give them 50 quid to spend as they like. I mean, it's not, it's quite an, an, an it's an honour. That's the truth of it. It is quite a distinction. And Judith does deserve it. Pieces like The True Light and her choral works are utterly sublime.
How linked up is music today in England? Because it all seems so sort of, everything seems nudged out, if I may say, by modern modern music. By that, I mean the music of the young people. So, I mean, hip hop and rap and garage and house and all the names which we literally haven't any idea of, the new phases which come in and are followed avidly by thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people, and the new divas of the world, the Taylor Swifts and so on. And the people like this who who seem to have their music so eclipses the world that actually when people talk about music now, they only mean that kind of music. I know. So where has classical music gone? It's kind of been squeezed into the wainscot. Wainscot, that's no, an old-fashioned no, no, word. No, no, look, I'm going to harp on again. We are not best supported by our government. We are not a country that is given to huge natural philanthropy. But... We have two orchestras in Glasgow. We have six globally reputed symphony orchestras in in London. We have something like 40 to 45 regular named orchestras in London, chamber orchestras, ensembles. Liverpool has its own symphony orchestra. Manchester has two, the BBC Philharmonic and the Halle. Leeds has its own opera house. Wales has the Welsh National Opera and the National Orchestra of Wales. This is not in the wainscots. Did you say the wainscots? Well, I just said it. Audiences are still coming out to see concerts. My only regret is that because everybody now knows what music they love best because they've got recordings, it means that they would prefer to go to a concert to hear something they know. And that has only been the case since the birth of commercial recordings and mass consumption of recordings. Before that, you'd be lucky to hear a piece at all, Mm. and it might be played once in your lifetime. And look at Beethoven and Mozart. They were required to write a new piece each time. Those pieces were not repeated. They might have been. But in the main, you went to a concert to hear something new all the time. Um, time's run out for us. I didn't think it would, but it has run out for us. Did you know that? No. It's largely because the car's waiting outside, the chauffeur is standing there, the little red car has been rolled out, and we're going off to a concert to hear some live new music. <laughs> Do you believe that? How wonderful. You believe anything. <laughs> Thank you, Maestro. Stevie, what should we end this programme with? Well, I'd really love it to be a piece by Peter Maxwell Davis. His, well, I think it's an incredibly exciting sonata for trumpet and piano. Thank you so much for listening to us. We'll see you next week. We've got so much more to tell you. She murmured. this episode you heard the following music. Concerto por Piano, Opus 42, First Movement, Andante, by Arnold Schoenberg, performed by Alfred Brendel, 
Sudwestrundfunk Sinfoniorchester Baden-Baden, conducted by Michael Gillen. The record label was BNF Collection. Rain Coming for Chamber Orchestra by Toru Takamitsu, performed by Kiyoi Sinfonietta Tokyo and Tadaki Otaka. The publisher was Shot Music Limited and record label BIS. Symphonia Domestica, Opus 53, First Movement, Theme by Richard Strauss, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Fritz Rainer. The record label was Unchained Melody. Symphony No. 2, First Movement, Allegro Vigoroso by Sir Michael Tippett, performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Sir Michael Tippett. The publisher was Shot Music Limited and the record label was NMC Recordings. Solstice of Light, The Celtic Priests, by Sir Peter Maxwell Davies, performed by Sir Stephen Cleobury, Neil Mackey, Christopher Hughes, and the choir of King's College, Cambridge. The publisher was Boozy and Hawke's Music Publishing. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Lessons in Love and Violence, Part 1, Scene 1. It's Nothing to Do with Loving a Man, by George Benjamin and Martin Crimp, performed by Peter Hoare, Stephanie de Gaulle, Gaila Arendt, Barbara Hannigan, and the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by George Benjamin. The publisher was Faber Music, and record label was Wirestone Estate. Make Me One, by John Schofield and Mark Anthony Turnage, performed by John Schofield, the Frankfurt Radio Symphony, John Patitucci, H.R. Big Band, Peter Erskine, and Hugh Wolfe. The publisher was Schott Music Limited, and record label was Deutsch Grammophon. Starbet Marta, Sancta Marta, Istud Agas, by James Macmillan, performed by Britain Sinfonia, The Sixteen, Jeremy Budd, Mark Doble, Simon Berridge, and George Pooley. The conductor was Harry Christophers. The publisher was Boozy and Hawks, and record label was The Sixteen Productions. Procession of Palms by Malcolm Williamson Performed by the Master Singers. The publisher was Josef Feinberger, and record label was Alan Simmons Music. The True Light by Judith Weir Performed by the Westminster Abbey Choir, James O'Donnell, and Peter Holder. The publisher was Chester Music, and record label was Hyperion Records Limited. Sonata for Trumpet and Piano, First Movement, Allegro Moderato, by Sir Peter Maxwell Davies. Performed by Alain Fink and George Vosberg. The publisher was Shot Music Limited, and record label was Four Winds Entertainment. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>